to read y'all's faces right now. This is looking difficult. I have prepared for this possibility that you'd be really tired tonight and to kill two birds with one stone to celebrate the birth of our country and also keep you awake. I've strategically placed two or three people in the audience with uh, bottle rockets, and so if you doze off, they've been instructed to light those during my message. I'm just kidding. We don't want to have any hospital injuries tonight, but yeah, that would have been a good idea, but this would be the last night I would see you. Um, yeah, do it. I'll do it Friday night, July 6th or whatever that is. Yeah. Um, let me ask you a question. I don't know if this has happened this week. There's not really slippery places around here, but uh, when you, uh, Asa, I'm looking right at you. You've heard this because uh, I thought of this when I was at your school um, talking about this passage a few weeks ago. But uh, when you see one of those little yellow um, caution wet floor signs, what do you immediately do? Wet the floor? No. You. <laughs> They're delirious. They hiked the 13er today. <laughs> um, now, when you see the, the yellow wet floor sign, caution wet floor, you immediately, like, you freeze because you don't want to be the guy or the girl who, like, boom, falls in front of everybody. So you slow down all of a sudden. You look to the floor. You see where the puddle is. Is it still wet? And if it's still wet, you're very, very careful where you put your feet. You're, like, tiptoeing around, distributing your weight carefully because you don't want to fall. And that's what those little yellow signs are there to do. It's like, hey... Be aware of your surroundings. If those signs weren't there, we just walked right in, slip, and fall. This psalm, we're, we're leaving First Peter uh, for a little bit tonight. This psalm, uh, I like to think of it as the, the caution wet floor sign for the Christian life. And it, here's the deal. Uh, life as an elect exile happens on a very slippery floor. And this psalm is uh, given to us in many other places in Scripture uh, to trigger in us the same response when you walk in the bathroom and see that yellow sign. To immediately look at our surroundings and say, I need to be careful how I'm walking and where I'm putting my weight because I am prone to slip. And it could be an epic fall um, that maybe other people see too. So that's what I think this psalm is, Psalm 73. I'm going to read most of it to you uh, right now. And then at the end, uh, we'll read the last part. Uh, this is God's word for you tonight. His word is never stale. It's only fresh. And so, um, listen attentively. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. Uh, sorry, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Because I was envious of the arrogant, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked... For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble just as other people are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. The wicked, they scoff. They speak with malice, loftily or arrogantly. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against you, God, against the heavens. And their tongues strut through the earth with their chest poked out. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, 
This is what the wicked are like. Always at ease. They increase in riches. Asaph's now speaking of himself, wondering, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak like this, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So he's sharing an inside thought with us, saying if I had said this out loud when I was going through it, I would have betrayed the younger generation. But when I thought about how to understand this, how to wrap my head around why the wicked prosper and why the righteous seem to suffer, why the Babylonians seem to have the easy life and the Israelites have it hard, when I tried to figure that out, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It made me tired. It broke my mind. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set the wicked in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. The wicked, they're like a dream when, you, when someone awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm thankful for your invitation specifically to weary people because our bodies might correlate with how our souls feel oftentimes, how our hearts feel tired, wondering how much more they're able to give, how much more they're able to walk, how much more they're able to pay attention. So we thank you that you say that even our tiredness qualifies us to come to you and receive strength from you and grace from you and, um, and wisdom from you. And so Jesus, uh, do what you say you promised to do tonight, we pray. We get to ask this prayer with great expectation because you've already said you'll do it. So be with us tonight, open our eyes, teach us your word by your Holy Spirit. Teach it to our hearts, not just our heads, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, my wife Anna and I... I mentioned this a little bit Saturday night when we got here, and I was giving you a little bit of my biography, but uh, we, when we started dating, we were already a half a continent apart. Uh, Anna had just moved to Colorado Springs, a couple hours north of here. Uh, she worked at a church there for four years, and I had just gotten to Philadelphia, where I spent uh, four years in seminary, and that's when we started dating. We'd known each other a little bit before, but we started dating at that point, so it was always only a long-distance cross-continental dating relationship. 1,600 miles, I think. And uh, some of you, I've heard stories of distance relationships tonight. People who've, been, who've met their uh, future husband or spouse here at YXL who had distance relationships. But they test your motivation like you wouldn't believe. Because a long-distance relationship oftentimes feels like all work and no play, in a sense. It's putting in a lot, but the person's not there with you to do things with, to be spontaneous with. And um, Anna and I, like, our relationship basically consisted of, you know, a quick call throughout the day, and then maybe every other night we would Skype for about 30 or 45 minutes. My roommate was big into Call of Duty in seminary. There was, like, no bandwidth left for me, so Anna was, like, three pixels, which was not very attractive, and they would freeze a lot, and it was just, it was rough. And we'd see each other about every six weeks, and what made it even more difficult was... I'm in Philadelphia, she's in Colorado Springs, and we're watching all of our friends kind of pair off and, and, and start dating, and it's a glorious, beautiful fall in Philadelphia. The trees are like blazing with colors, and boys and girls are walking hand in hand as the leaves fall down over them, and 
Anna's watching some of her friends, and they're talking about how great it is that me and, you know, my boyfriend have the same schedule because we can just call each other after work and go take a run together or go to the Y and work out or go see a movie at the last minute. And that made an already difficult relationship all the more difficult because now I'm sitting in the library alone looking at this happening out the window, and Anna is alone um, for months at a time, not seeing her boyfriend, watching all of her friends do this. And it really, in our more honest moments, and we would talk about this with each other and with a lot of our people who are mentoring us, it really made us wonder, is this even worth it? The comparison game, you know, like all these other people have it so much easier than we do, is this even worth it? It almost made our relationship more difficult seeing everyone else around us. And, and again, in our more honest moments, it, it, it made us resent our relationship. You just don't want to give anymore, right? You're just like... It's give, 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 man. Like, I mean, because of the time zone, time zone difference, it was like 11.30 p.m. when we were starting our Skype calls because it was you know, 9.30 her time out here in Colorado, and I had to be up at 7 the next morning for Hebrew class and stuff. It was, it was hard. And we began to lose perspective. And when you lose perspective, that means you, you're at a place where you're asking, why am I doing this anymore? And when you lose perspective, you lose heart, which means you lose motivation. And when you lose motivation, you lose your footing. And when you lose your footing, you slip. And it all starts with when you lose perspective, you lose heart. When you lose heart, you lose your footing. When you lose your footing, you slip and you fall. And here's the thing. When you fall and you're on the ground, isn't it weird how everybody else looks taller than you and stronger than you? and more secure and more stable than you. When you're on the ground and everyone's up, standing up, looking down at you, everybody's life seems better than yours, right? When you're the one who slipped and is on the ground, it's a hard place to be. And in that place, when you're on the ground, whatever the circumstances in your life, you've slipped, you've lost motivation, you're wondering, why am I doing this anymore? What's the point? And you've started to slip, your heart's getting hard, maybe a little bit cynical, and you're on the ground and you're looking at everybody else. You begin to resent those people too, right? You don't, you don't love hearing, oh, let me tell you about my girlfriend. You're like, I don't want to hear about her. Be quiet, please. Or like, listen to, listen to the grade I got on that test. I'd rather not hear the grade you got on that test if it's better than the grade I got on that test because I'm here on the floor. I don't want to hear about it. You want to trade lives with people. You get to a place where you want to trade lives and say, hey, can we swap stories? You take this stuff I'm dealing with, and I get to live your life. It's the greener grass conspiracy, right? Grass is greener on the other side. Everybody else's lives are easier than my life, and so I'd really love to trade. Here's the question for you. Have you ever experienced a time like this, where this dynamic is churning in your heart and your mind, and you're asking these kind, of, these kind of questions? Motivation is difficult for you. You've lost perspective. You don't know why you're doing whatever you're doing again, whether it's why you're going to church, why you're going to school, why you're still sticking in it with your parents, Whatever it is, have you gotten to a place like that where you are just bathing in the exilic tension that we've been talking about the past few days? You, you feel out of place. Let me up the ante even more because this psalm is not a generic life psalm. Like, here's some inspiration for living. This has a very specific purpose. Let me up the ante. Have you felt this dynamic that I'm talking about with God? Have you felt this in your life as a Christian? Losing perspective, losing heart, losing footing, slipping, falling, 
envying, resenting, wanting to trade lives with other people. Everybody here, to some extent or another, can t has tasted a little bit of that. Some of you have tasted it in a really bitter way or a really strong way. Everybody will experience it. One, one takeaway we have from this passage is this is in your Bible. As if to say you have warrant to talk to God about this kind of stuff if it's going on in your life. He knows. He's heard this prayer before. It, it authorizes you to deal with this stuff instead of secretly keeping it in and saying, I can't let anyone know this is how I feel. So nobody is a stranger to this kind of stuff. But here's the million-dollar question maybe for this passage. How do we get to a place like this? Because it, it, it takes a lot of time to get there. It's, it's the whole losing perspective period of life, and then it's the losing heart life, throwing in the towel, then it's the slipping, then it's the falling, then it's the brooding that's, that takes time. How do we get there? How do we get to a place of thinking God is blessing all the wrong people and he's not blessing me? He's answering all the wrong people's prayers, but he's not answering my prayers. How do we get to a place like that? Let's describe it spatially. I, this kind of stuff comes out of our heart when there is a growing gap to the way you think your life should be going and the way your life is actually going. Does that make sense? The further that gap, the more intense these questions. The way you think your life should be going versus the way it's actually going. So the dreams you had for the way your sophomore year, your junior year, your friend group was supposed to go, YXL was supposed to go. Your spiritual life this year, the way you thought it should be going or, or wished it was going and the way it's actually going, the bigger that gap, the more prone we are to lose perspective, lose heart, lose footing, slip, fall, and become embittered. That's how we get to a place like that. And so let me, let me throw a few of these out, out at you and ask you, where's the gap for you right now? Where's the gap? Where's the, the biggest chasm between the way you thought it was going to go and the way it's actually panning out day by day for you? Is it that all of your friends who aren't Christians who couldn't care less about their sin, who are not fighting against it, pushing back against it, denying, abstaining, as Peter said last night, their life looks so easy and tranquil. Like, they're not tired and frustrated by besetting sins or habits or patterns. And, and have you ever gotten to a place where you're like, I'd give anything to have just a carefree life like they have, to not have to deal with this day in, day out? Is the, is the gap for you... Uh, same-sex attraction that you're dealing with secretly or you've talked to people about. And all of your friends, you're living in a moment in history where everybody is saying, embrace it, embrace it, embrace it. Your sexuality is your identity. It's who you are. It's the hardest time in the world to struggle with that. Faithfully. Is that the gap for you? That you are pushing back or you're trying to figure out how to push back? How, how does God's grace meet me in the middle of this? How does he walk with me in the middle of this? But everybody around you isn't. And they look, it's just so easy for them. It's celebrated. But nobody's celebrating you. Is the gap that you don't have that tight friend group by the point in your life you thought you'd have it? The band of brothers, the sisters who are in the trenches with you at your church or in school or whatever else. It's just not there. It's an awkward friend group. Or you don't have any friends. They're just acquaintances. And you're like, God, I've been praying about this. Where is it? And it's not there. And the gap between what you thought would happen and what's happening is really big. 
and this, these kind of ASAP questions are coming in your heart too, is it your parents? Man, everybody in the room could stand up if I said, do you have a complicated relationship with your parents? <laughs> oh yeah, uh, we all do. But is that the big intense gap for you that so many years of trying to figure it out, how to love them, how to relate to them in a healthy way, and it's just like spinning your wheels and you're like, at what point do I throw in the towel, give up, and just be done with this? Is that the gap? Asaph says in verse 1, my foot had almost slipped, which means I had almost thrown in the towel, which is saying a lot. Because Asaph, we know from other places in Scripture, we know from some of the prefaces to the Psalms, Asaph was like the choir master at the temple for the people of God. And he wasn't just the worship leader like Paul's been this week. He was the guy who wrote the hymns they sang. That's a big deal. When not just the guy who's leading the people of God in worship at the temple, but the guy who is writing the liturgy, writing the psalms that, that Israel would sing to worship to God, this is a page out of his diary. I wanted to trade places with the wicked. I wanted their life. I wanted, I wanted out. I almost slipped, which means I already lost perspective, already lost heart, had started to slip. This is Asaph saying, this is a, it's different than it's just if one of our diaries. Guys, this is the worship leader, this is the worship writer who's saying these things. And he's torn because he sees a gap between the way he thought his life should be going or he wished it was going in the way it was going. Where do we see that? In the psalm, I think in verse 1, he's not being simplistic and saying, oh, God's good to Israel. Yeah, right. Listen to this. I think, he's, I think that's kind of the, the very first line in this song. He's saying in a way that would make goosebumps come up. He's saying, God is so good to Israel. It's not simplistic. You know, if you've ever... If you've known someone who's, who's beaten cancer and come out the other side, they can say something to you and it can make the hair on the back of your head stand up. It's so profound and impacting. They can say, they can look at you when you're going through something hard and grab you by the shoulders and say, Jesus is faithful. He will not leave you. And because they have the scars to be able to say something like that, it affects you. Or your friend who's never suffered at all can say, you're going through a really hard time and they just say, hey, trust Jesus, he's faithful. Same words, this doesn't mean much, this brings you to your knees. I think verse 1 is Asaph saying, not in a simplistic way, hey, Hallmark, God's good, great, let's move on. God, this guy has bled to be able to say this. He has the scars to back it up. God is good to his people. It took Asaph a lot of pain and suffering to get to that point, though. Because what did, what did, uh, well, I guess let's start with where his life was, and then we'll talk about where he wanted it to be. Verse 5, this is what he says. He says, my life is plagued with problems. I'm stricken with problems. Verse 21, my soul, it was embittered and cynical. It was acidic. It was toxic. Verse 22, I was all torn up inside. I was brutish, brutal. I was brutish. I was ignorant. Verse 3, I envied the arrogant. In other words, I wanted to swap lives with them. You can have God, and I can have your ease. I secretly wanted their lives. That's where his life had gotten. What did Asaph want? 
What was this over here where he thought his life should be? What was his dream? This is what reality was. What was his dream? What was he after? Well, look at the things that he, look at the very specific things that caught his attention in the wicked. It's not a random thing. They all have the lowest common denominator. Look at this. Verses 3 through 11. He says, I saw them prosper. They seemed to have painless lives, no pangs until death. Their bodies were fat and sleek. In that time, that meant you, were, you had a lot of money. You were well-fed. You were healthy. They don't have troubles. They have everything they want. They enjoy a life of ease, and their riches increase. What's the lowest common denominator of all of that? It's a life of comfort and ease. Right? I'm not making that up. Asa, it's not... It's not everything about the life of the wicked that he was envying and wanting. It was the comfortable part. It was the easy part. It was the coasting part. The pain-free part. The way he wanted his life to be going and the way he thought it should be going versus the way it was going. That gap was enormous for Asaph. He lost perspective already. He had lost heart. He was going through the motions. He was that worship leader up here wondering as he stands up to lead worship, why am I doing this? This is a lie. That gap was big. Here's where, and I love this. He says, I tried to figure it out. <laughs> Have you tried to figure out the gap? <clears throat> you tried to pray through the gap? I love this. Asaph says, I couldn't figure it out. He says, it made me tired. My mind couldn't pop out the answer. The only thing that changed things for Asaph, he says in verse 17, there's a turning point. He uses the word until. And this is, this is the key. This is one of two key words in this psalm. He says, until I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. So let's push, let's review a few things and put it back into this word until. He had lost perspective until he entered the sanctuary. He had lost heart, motivation, vision, purpose until he entered the sanctuary. He'd lost his footing and he was slipping until he entered the sanctuary. Everyone was taller than him when he was on the ground until he went to the sanctuary. That is the place where his perspective changed. Now, here's my question to you. Why that place? Because he didn't say, until I went on a retreat, or until I read this best-selling Christian book that was, just blew my socks off. Uh, and he didn't say, until I kind of went out in the woods and had a, had a spiritual experience. He said, until I went into the sanctuary. Why? He's talking about worship. He's the worship leader. Side note, Asaph was going to church when he probably didn't want to be going to church. Asaph was going to church because he had to go to church. His name was on the bulletin. Worship leader. What mercy from God. God kept Asaph on a very short leash. Sometimes he keeps you on a short leash. He keeps you near to him through duties, through things you committed to you wish you could get out of. But he keeps you close to him where you will hear what Asaph hears. Worship, friends, if you forget everything else tonight, I would love for you to remember this part. Worship is... I think I could say this, the most personal thing you will ever do in your life. It's the most intimate thing you can do with your life. It's the most interpersonal thing you can do. Because I think at its essence, worship is interpersonal, which means more than one person. Us and the three-person God. It is intimate. It's face-to-face. -face. 
is between God and his people. Now, I say this, and I'm married, and so in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking as I say these words, wouldn't you say sex is the most personal, intimate, interpersonal thing you could do in your life? It's close. But remember, if you've heard any of these seminars or stuff in the past, sex is a signpost. It's a great signpost. And it's, it's when you look at it, it's like, no, 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 not at me. Look over here. Look over here. This is better. This is better. This is amazing. This is even better. Sex is pointing to the communion, the interpersonal communion, the worship between God and his people. I'm not going to get graphic here. Don't worry, anybody. But what do husbands and wives say to each other? And they say a lot of other stuff. They say, I want you. They say, you're, you're so beautiful. I love you. That's worship talk. That is worship talk. When husband and wife come together, it is, in, in a sense, it's this interpersonal communion. It's worship. It's praise. It's celebration of a relationship that already exists. And so sex is not the most intimate, personal, interpersonal thing that you can do. Worship is. Sex is pointing to it. Now, this is not as simple as it sounds because I've already pointed out a problem. Asaph was going to church who knows how long before this moment happened. And so the question might come up, well, where was God on all those other days? Right? Is that a valid question? Where was this kind of like amazing experience on all the other days that Asaph felt like he was going through the motions? Well, God was there all along. I'm not sure Asaph was there. In a true sense. I mean, God, God was present. Asaph couldn't see him. And Asaph tells us in retrospect why he couldn't see God. He said, I was like an animal. I was brutish. I was ignorant. I was so focused on this, my dream of how my life was supposed to go, that I couldn't see what you were present tense doing in me, for me. How you were holding me close to you. Even though that's the very thing that he probably resented the most. Oh, I gotta go lead worship again. When's someone else going to step up? 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Ugh. He was so obsessively focused and, and distracted by this, he couldn't see this at all. So Asaph was in church. God was there. But Asaph was looking over here. So he couldn't see God. God wasn't a person to him anymore in this state. He was this theological idea, Right? He was, this, he was this ideology, he was this deity in the sky. <clears throat> we begin to wrap up. I want to read the last paragraph of this because this is the other time things changed for Asaph. This is when things really changed, and this is why they changed. Picking up in verse 23. Well, let me pick up in verse 21 because that's, that's the juicy stuff. My soul was embittered when I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you, or towards you, God. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. I have been a fool. I have blown it. I choked. I was stupid. I forgot you. I trampled your grace. I didn't care. I didn't see you. I didn't seek you. And yet you will receive me into glory. I didn't feel like you were near me. I felt like you were a million miles away. And I am continually with you. I was slipping and falling and had nothing to grab onto. 
you hold my right hand. No one was there to guide me. I was all alone. You guide me with your counsel. He says in verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Here comes the worship talk. Here comes the intimate, personal, interpersonal worship. This is stuff husbands and wives say to each other. Who do I have but you? There is no one I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. You are my portion forever. You are my portion forever. What does it mean that God is our portion? You got a portion of apple cobbler tonight, but you didn't get the whole pan of it. Does portion mean you get your allotment of God? Portion is a rich term throughout the entire Bible. God being your portion means he is your satisfaction. He is yours. A.W. Tozer said, an infinite God can give all of himself to each of his children. He doesn't distribute himself so that each may have a part, but to each one he gives all of himself as fully as if there were no others. God doesn't give a sliver of himself so that there's enough to share with everyone else. He gives you all of himself. Augustine said, how great a God is he who gives God? What is the greatest gift God has given you? Is it peace? Is it emotional harmony? Is it relationships? Is it health? Is it protection? Is it endurance? Is it blessing? Is it grace? I don't think any of those things are the greatest blessing God gives. The greatest blessing God has given you is himself. All of himself. His grace is unto that. He has given you grace so that you can have all of him, be united to him, be married to him, live with him forever. The greatest gift God has given his people is himself. Augustine is right. He is your portion. So Asaph is in worship and he sees this. I don't know how. Was it a a psalm that they were singing? Was it a liturgical reading that someone was reading up front? Was it a comment, a friend? I don't know. But in corporate worship, in worshiping with the saints of God, the people of God, in this exile, exilic kind of place and atmosphere, that's where Asaph saw God again. That's where God in his mercy turned the lights back on for Asaph. And the lights didn't just come on to, to God's mercy that he's his portion, that there's nothing he desires except God in heaven or on earth. But the lights came back for all of reality. And he said, how is I such an idiot? Of course the wicked perish. Nobody mocks God. No sin goes unpunished. God is just. He is fair. The wicked will fall and the righteous will stand. He's saying, how did I miss it all along? How did I miss it? When you see God... You see the world as it is. When you see God, you see yourself as you are. When you see God, you see him as he is. That's what worship is. That's what worship is. Asaph says, uh, one of the last uh, verses in this, he says, But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all his good works. 
And he followed through on that promise, right? Tonight you heard of God's good works from the mouth of Asaph. Asaph has been affected by this just the way the cancer patient has been affected through the trial of struggling with cancer. It comes out the other side. And when they say things to you, don't take them lightly. Because they have the scars and the wounds to earn credibility for what they say. Asaph has earned credibility. We deserve to listen to him. He deserves us to listen to him. God is good to his people. If you have lost perspective right now in any of the areas we talked about, if you, have, if you are losing or have lost heart, you're considering throwing in the towel, or you're wondering if you should throw in the towel, if your feet are slipping on a wet floor, if you are on the floor looking up at everybody else around you, what do you need? You need exactly where you are, exactly what you're doing, exactly what you're hearing. Faith, faith inhabits this place you're in, and it says, I know my father. I might not see him. He might have, for some reason or other, withdrawn a sense of his presence from me right now. I might, have, I might be so distracted by this, my dream over here that he's not giving me that I don't see him. But I know he's good. I know Psalm 107 is true. He satisfies the longings of men's souls. And so I wait. And I cry out. Because I know he is there and I know he is good. Friends, this, this song is your song. This is an exile song. There will be a day where you will never feel this, never say this, never think this, because you'll be living in his presence here forever when heaven comes, when Jesus makes everything new. But until that time, this is the exile song that we sing to each other. Open our eyes. Say, God is not far away. He is near. He is for his people. He is your portion, all of it. The whole pie is yours. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that. We thank you that you are the evidence of God giving himself. And Father, you did not just give us God the Son, God the Spirit, but Jesus has reconciled us to you. The Spirit has united us to Jesus. You have poured out your Spirit on us. We have all of you. Lord Jesus, we pray that uh, you would give us patience and zeal and endurance. As we live in this exile life, we pray that you would teach us what it means to worship, that our worship would be personal, not of an idea, not of an emotion, but of you, our God. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.